This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by AnchorLight. For more information about all of AnchorLight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Just to note that this episode contains adult content. Really, really adult content. So please take care when listening. There are just a slew of questions that I get asked over and over again as an art historian because there are things that people are always interested in. What's so great about the Mona Lisa and why is she smiling like that? How come so many ancient sculptures are missing limbs? And why are there so many old-looking babies in medieval and early Renaissance paintings? Good question, by the way. But there's one that I get asked by art lovers who have traveled to Paris or who are a little more familiar with 19th century painting than most. Because at the Musée d'Orsay, there is a painting on display that's just flat-out shocking to see on a wall, where anyone can walk by it. And those who have seen it frequently come back to me and say, Why? How is this allowed? So, what is this work of art? It's a full-on close-up view of a woman's genitalia. Nothing more, and certainly nothing less. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In this episode, the last in our two-season deep dive into shock art, we're covering one of the most shocking paintings of all, Gustave Courbet's The Origin of the World. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Jean-Desiré Gustave Courbet, known just as Gustave Courbet to us, was born in 1819 into a prosperous household in Ornans, about 450 kilometers southeast of Paris, and in the section of France known as the Bourgogne, and not terribly far from the Swiss border. Like many artists of this time period, he really bristled against the confines of provincial France and wanted to get to where all the action was. Paris. At 20 years old, he moved to Paris and jumped headfirst into the art world. He first worked as a studio assistant to two other artists, Steuben and Hesse about whom I could really find nothing in my cursory research other than Courbet's connection to the two of them. But Courbet really hated this traditional academic art setting, and as he would do throughout much of his life, he took matters into his own hands. He developed his own style of painting and trained himself based on close study of works that he saw in the Louvre Museum, loving especially the Spanish, Flemish, and French masters hanging therein. But even here, he felt that something was missing. Copying art felt a little too distant, 
and what Courbet wanted was to paint from life, only representing what he himself saw with his own eyes. This led to a series of self-portraits in which Courbet portrays himself in a multitude of roles as a way to work out everything from facial expressions to body positioning and so forth. None of these works would find him a place at the lauded Paris Salon until 1849, when his painting, After Dinner at Ornan, received a gold medal and a purchase from the state. The gold medal signaled that he would no longer require jury approval for an exhibition at the Salon from that point onwards. And if the arbiters at the Paris Salon thought that this style of painting, a little staid, a little boring, was what was in store from Courbet for the rest of his life, oh man, they really had something else coming. And it came pretty quickly, too. The following year, Courbet exhibited the first of many, many paintings that would both thrill and anger salon officials and audiences. The Stonebreakers, also from 1849, does not, to our contemporary eyes, appear the slightest bit provocative, but it truly shook the Parisian bourgeoisie. The provincial working man, toiling away under harsh working conditions and presented for all to see right next to mythological or historical paintings? The horror! But all joking aside, it was a big deal, both in terms of what Courbet would paint, only what he saw with his own eyes, unglamorous and super modern, but also what Courbet himself would be, a rule breaker, a rebel. But as the gold medal recipient for After Dinner at Ornan in 1849, he was also given carte blanche to show whatever he wanted and to appear without being juried in at the salon. That is, until 1857, when he appeared in the salon for the very last time. At the Salon of 1857, Courbet showed six paintings, including a work titled Young Ladies on the Banks of the Seine, Summer. Now, just based on the title, this sounds pretty lovely. But like Manet, Picasso, and many other artists who would come after, Courbet here flaunts his disinterest in tradition and instead did things his way by depicting not two elegant women enjoying the summertime landscape, but instead two sex workers lying on the shore of the Seine. It's really funny. But this work, to me and my 21st century viewpoint, looks almost tamer than the thousands of timeless or traditional nudes that came before for centuries. Because here, we see two fully dressed women, with shoes on even, just lounging together. But at the salon, it was exactly this fact that Courbet was presenting modern women in modern clothes, with the skirt of one woman just slightly disheveled enough to tell that she's wearing modern undergarments therein too. It would be the same with Manet's Olympia a few years later. The thought was that how dare these artists refuse to comply with academic traditions and subject matter? To make matters worse, Courbet specifically chose to show this work alongside five other paintings of his, all of them rather tame hunting paintings. And he did this on purpose, he said, to promise himself, quote, notoriety and sales. He was no dummy. He leveraged his position to do exactly what he hoped. And the more he worked, the more he garnered both notoriety and sales, just as he had hoped. Coming up next, right after the break, Courbet gets edgier and edgier with his works and then makes the edgiest of them all. Stay with us. Anyone who has explored both art and science knows that the two worlds are never far apart. They are constantly inspiring and informing one another. And this has never been so apparent as in the life of Leonardo da Vinci. 
I recommend checking out a video series that would completely change what you thought you knew about this incredible artist. It's called Leonardo da Vinci and the Italian High Renaissance. And throughout this course, Professor George Bent explores Leonardo's fascinating career, not just his career as a painter, but also as a scientist and an inventor. And he will dive deep not only into the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper, but also Leonardo's inventions that were way beyond their time. Things like tanks, flying machines, submarines. And this course is so full of many fascinating nuggets. So if you ever wanted to learn why Leonardo wrote backwards in his journals, for example, George Bent will teach you all the stories behind these really curious and interesting details. Leonardo da Vinci and the Italian High Renaissance comes from The Great Courses. And The Great Courses is an educational media company that was started more than 25 years ago to make learning more accessible. They are currently offering more than 600 in-depth courses as well as a streaming video service. And they are all presented by bright and engaging experts. For a limited time only, you can purchase a digital copy of Leonardo da Vinci and the Italian High Renaissance from The Great Courses for just $44.95. That's a huge savings of $275. But this incredible offer is only available through my special URL. Order Leonardo da Vinci now by going to thegreatcourses.com slash art. That's thegreatcourses.com slash art. Today's episode of Art Curious is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is a fantastic online learning community with thousands of classes geared toward creators, entrepreneurs, and curious people everywhere. With Skillshare, you can take online courses in brand management, SEO basics, logo design, nonfiction writing, I mean, seriously, you name it, they've got it. So whether you're picking up a new skill for your day job, working on a side hustle, or pursuing a long-time passion, Skillshare has classes for you. I've been keeping my eye on a slew of hand lettering and modern calligraphy courses, and Skillshare makes it easy for me to learn on my own time and in my own home. And Skillshare's teachers are amazing. They even have Roxanne Gay teaching an hour-long course on crafting personal essays. Roxanne Gay, you guys. That's huge. And you can join me and millions of other students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of classes for free. That's right, Skillshare is offering Art Curious listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com artcurious. Again, go to Skillshare.com artcurious to start your two-month trial now. That's Skillshare.com artcurious. Ladies, by now I know you've heard about Third Love, the company that makes the most comfortable bra you've ever worn. Well, let me tell you, I recently tried Third Love for the first time and they weren't kidding. These bras are wonderful and beautiful and they fit just right. And that's because Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women who have taken their Fit Finder quiz to design bras with breast size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and premium feel. On top of that, they offer more sizes than most other brands, with more than 70 sizes, including their signature half-cup options. Let me tell you a little bit about the Fit Finder quiz. In less than a minute, you can take a quiz that will guide you to identify your breast size and shape and find styles that will fit your body best. 
and it's actually fun to do this. And once you identify the best bra for you, 3rd Love has a 100% fit guarantee, offering every customer a 60-day period to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, you can return it for free, and 3rd Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. 3rd Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone, and for me, it is their 24-7 classic t-shirt bra, which comes in a variety of colors. I got mine in a beautiful rose dust color, and there is no doubt about it. It is the most comfortable bra I have ever tried. Again, 3rd Love knows that there's a perfect bra for you, too. So right now, they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash artcuriousnow to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash artcurious for 15% off today. The Citizenry is a socially conscious home decor brand bringing time-tested craftsmanship to the modern home. The folks at The Citizenry travel all around the world partnering with master artisans to create exclusive collections sold direct to you online without the middleman markup. With incredibly beautiful and unique pieces created in over 15 countries, their collections are designed to highlight the unique materials and craft traditions of each destination. And as a world traveler myself, I can't be more excited about their gorgeous pieces. In fact, I ordered one of their iconic lumbar pillows, the ones that put the citizenry on the map in the first place. And each of those pillows is hand-dyed with all-natural dyes, such as native plant extracts, so no chemicals there. And they feature bold designs reimagined and inspired by the geometric patterns used by the Zapotec tribes of the Oaxaca region in Mexico. I got mine in this beautiful dusky pink and black pattern called the Viento, and it is going to look so chic on my bed. And while I really love that this pillow looks amazing, I equally love that it makes an incredible social impact too. Because every dollar you spend at the Citizenry supports fair wages, safe working environments, and is a direct investment into artisan entrepreneurs. The Citizenry donates 10% of all proceeds directly back to the artisan communities around the globe to help craftspeople and entrepreneurs take their businesses to new heights. For a $50 gift voucher towards your first purchase of $200 or more, go to citizenrypodcast.com and enter promo code ARTCURIOUS. That's C-I-T-I-Z-E-N-R-Y podcast.com. Remember, get a $50 gift voucher towards your first purchase of $200 or more by going to citizenrypodcast.com and enter promo code ARTCURIOUS. Welcome back to Art Curious. After his exhibition of young ladies on the banks of the Seine, Summer, Gustave Courbet had truly angered the salon enough that they basically rescinded their previous rule about gold medal salon winners being able to show whatever they wanted at the salon without being juried in. And so, 1857 was the last time that Courbet ended up showing at the Paris Salon, because he was refused entry from that point on. But by then, it really didn't matter because Courbet had already become famous, or infamous, really, that he didn't need the salon's hallowed ground to garner attention anymore. He was able to do what he wanted, and people would follow. And so he painted a series of increasingly erotic paintings that were both shocking and surprisingly popular. But none of them would be as shocking as his 1866 piece de resistance. Courbet's interest in the erotic and his ability to make a sale came together for his most provocative work, The Origin of the World. 
And as we mentioned at the top of this episode, there's no mincing of words here. Painted in 1866, the origin of the world depicts a close-up, cropped image of a woman's spread legs and her abdomen leading up to one partially uncovered breast. It's spectacularly shocking, because it's not at all what we're used to seeing on the walls of a museum, let alone just out in the open anywhere. So even first-time visitors to the Musée d'Orsay, where the work is housed today, are often taken by surprise when they stumble upon the work for the very first time in the galleries. But one thing needs to be made clear here. When it was produced in 1866, it wasn't meant to be hanging on the walls of one of the world's top museums. It was meant for the eyes of one man only. It is believed that Halil Sharif Pasha, also known under the name of Khalil Bey, an Ottoman diplomat born in Cairo and living in Paris since the early 1860s, specifically commissioned this painting from Courbet after being introduced to the painter and becoming familiar with his work. And sidebar, he also most likely commissioned one of Courbet's other most notorious works, titled The Sleepers, of two women amorously snoozing together. And if the words amorous and snooze could really be used in conjunction. Khalil Bey was a supreme art collector, and one whose collection was well known at the time, causing the French writer and art critic Théophile Gautier to note that it was, quote, the first ever to be formed by a child of Islam. What was so fascinating and perhaps surprising about Khalil Bey's collection was that it specifically centered around erotic art. He collected sensual pieces by Delacroix, Ang, Corot, Rousseau, Jerome, and many others. And he was looking for a crown jewel that he could show off to diplomats and upper-class men whom he entertained at his home. And, oh boy, with the origin of the world, visitors would certainly have received an eyeful. To be fair, we can lump some praise onto Courbet's rendition here, because, following his tenet of representing what he could truly only see with his own eyes, it is a fairly realistic and anatomically correct painting, with extra props heralded onto it by those who favor the quote-unquote natural look when it comes to pubic hair. But you've got to think that most, if any, positive response that has been directed at this work is most likely coming from us as 21st century viewers. You gotta wonder how it was received in private circles and within Khalil Bey's chambers, where he kept the work hidden behind a green curtain, which he'd peekaboo aside for the eyes of the very select few. Not much is known about how the work was received, but what is known is that Bey was an impulsive and addicted gambler. And in 1868, he lost his fortune and was forced to sell the painting and most of his collection to pay off his debt. And for more than a century, the origin of the world passed around private collections and was even owned for a time by Jacques Lacan, the famed French psychologist, until it was given to the Musée d'Orsay by Lacan's heirs in 1995. And as the Musée d'Orsay's website notes about the painting, it, quote, epitomizes the paradox of a famous painting that is actually seldom seen, unquote. They say that because it had only been shown publicly twice in its history up to that point, once at a Courbet retrospective in Brooklyn in 1988 and in Ornan, Courbet's hometown, in 1991. Over the last two decades, the origin of the world has remained in the limelight not only for its subject matter, but for the lack of information regarding the subject itself. Who would have modeled for such an outrageous work of art?
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That sensational crop of the painting means that there's really no way to identify the model. But that hasn't prevented anyone in the art world from trying. Naturally, a good place to start any investigation was with the artist's own background. In the years prior to the conception of The Origin of the World, Courbet frequently used a woman named Joanna Hiffernan as his model and muse, and she appeared in at least four of his paintings up to that point. Hiffernan was an Irish woman with startlingly beautiful red hair, and she was not only Corbet's muse and possible paramour, but she was also similarly attached to James Abbott McNeil Whistler, who portrayed her in one of his most famous works, titled Symphony in White No. 1, The White Girl, from 1862. During the same period that Corbet painted The Origin of the World for Khalil Bey, he also completed Bey's second commission, The Sleepers, for which Heffernan was most definitely a model. Now, it was assumed for the longest time that Hiffernan was the model for The Origin of the World because she had already modeled nude for Courbet. And because of Courbet and Whistler's purported falling out soon after the painting was completed. This is all very much art historical speculation, but the story is that Hiffernan and Whistler had, like Courbet and Hiffernan, been romantically involved for a time before separating. The idea, then, is that Hiffernan could have gone on to model for The Origin and that such an intimate image could have spurred on a disagreement between Courbet and Whistler. That being said, though, there has always been a real question about whether or not this was the reason for Courbet and Whistler being at odds, and even if Hiffernan was indeed the model for the origin. Because, let's face it, Joe Hiffernan was an Irish beauty famed for her vibrant red locks, and the hair that Courbet so blatantly displays in The Origin of the World is not red. So historians have been obsessed with the pointedly vulgar and tactless fact that the carpet, as they say, does not match the drapes, if Hiffernan was indeed the model. And feminist-minded critics have been eager to note early on that such an identification of Hiffernan as a model is just not only gross, but totally sexist, based on the stereotype of redheads as having fiery personalities and thus being fiery in the sack as well, and therefore more apt to pose nude. And by the way, for more details of stereotypes and misconceptions frequently lobbed at gingers, I recommend the British documentary Being Ginger from 2013. So the question still remains, is it Hiffernan? Probably not. But if it isn't her, then who is it? Believe it or not, that is something that has possibly just recently been revealed, but not before something else was revealed first. In 2010, a painting was uncovered in a Parisian antique store and sold to an anonymous collector for under $2,000. At some point soon after, the owner had a revelation. The image of a woman's head thrown back in a swoon, dark eyes open, flushed skin, and a crown of curly dark hair seemed like it was painted at an odd angle, almost like it should be part of a larger canvas. And indeed, it looked like the painting had been cut or trimmed and there was no signature present. So what artist in his or her right mind wouldn't sign a work of art? 
and that's when Courbet expert Jean-Jacques Fernier was called in for a close examination. After two years of analysis and testing, as well as taking steps of aligning the newfound portion with the d'Orsay's origin of the world, Fernier concluded in 2013 that the pigments, brushstrokes, and grooves that would have been made by that work's original wooden frame, they looked to be a match. And that was a big deal. The news of the missing half of the origin of the world was trumpeted in art and culture publications all over, even making the cover of such high-profile magazines as France's famed Paris Match. But this being the art world, there was definitely grumbling and dissent over this supposed authentication of Fernier's. Critics lobbed that there was too much of a difference in style between the two images, and that even paint and canvas couldn't be the end-all, be-all of matching since such materials were widely available and more standardized by the mid-19th century. So any artist could have basically painted such a scene, they say. Even the chief curator at the Courbet Museum in Ornan was noted in said Perry Match article as, quote, not convinced. So the world isn't totally sure if the reputed upper half of the origin is really verifiable, but just last year, late 2018, the world may finally know the actual identity of the model. And Joe Hiffernan, it ain't. In September 2018, a French historian named Claude Schopp, having toiled away for years in the French National Library and Archives working on a biography of Alexandre Dumas, the younger, the renowned author and playwright and son of the more famous Alexandre Dumas père, the elder, who wrote The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers, among other masterworks. In transcribing and poring over the letters that Dumas wrote to another famous author, George Sand, Schopp had been bewildered by a passage that just didn't make sense. As the New York Times reported on October 1st, 2018, Schopp was reading a passage, quote, in the old typewritten copies, where Dumas inveighs against the insolent and cowardly Courbet, who had committed an artistic heresy in the view of Dumas, unquote. And here, Dumas himself is quoted, quote, one doesn't paint with one's most delicate and sonorous brush the interview of Miss Kenio of the opera for the Turk who took refuge inside it from time to time, all of it life-size, and life-size also two women passing for men." Unquote. As the Times noted, a couple of the clues here are fairly easy to pick out. First, the Turk was well known to be Khalil Bey, and the image of the so-called two women passing for men is most probably a reference to the two lovers in The Sleepers. But the transcription was still confusing. So, like any good historian, Schopp went straight to the source, Dumas' original manuscript from the French National Library. Therein, he and archivist and historian Sylvie Aubenas found a little error that made a huge difference. Dumas hadn't written, quote, the interview of Miss Kenio of the opera, unquote, he wrote, The Interior of Miss Kenio. He even underlined it, as the New York Times noted, to emphasize that he was playing with words. Dumas, then, was really complaining to Georges Sand about how indecorous Courbet had been to create the scene of a lady's interior, especially when the man who commissioned it, quote, took refuge inside it from time to time. Whoa. So who is this Miss Kenio? It turns out that she was fairly well-known, and it wasn't too difficult for Shop and Obana to dig up information and images of her. Born in 1832 outside of Paris, Constance Kenio, whose name Dumas misspelled in his original letter to Sand, established herself as a dancer in the 1840s and the 1850s, 
working as a part of a ballet company of the Paris Opera. Now, if you know anything about the way dancers, especially ballerinas, were perceived in the mid to late 19th century, and we've talked about this a little bit in our third season back in episode 38, when we looked a little bit more closely at Edgar Degas and his famous ballet paintings. Dancers, well, they were seen as easy pickings for rich men who were looking for a little bit of company on the side. But from all accounts, Kenny O was the real deal. As the Times article notes, she was called out by a critic as being gracious and distinguished, and even Théophile Gautier, the same man who commented with awe on Khalil Bey's erotic art collection, even he thought Kenio was a marvelous dancer. And speaking of Khalil Bey, that's where the story gets even more interesting. Constance Kenio quit dancing in 1859 after a debilitating injury, and so she had to find another good source of income and well-being. And she found it when she met Khalil Bey and began accompanying him as a sort of good luck charm to his gambling trips. So you can see where the connection between her and Bey comes into it. And it's not a stretch then to see that Bey, possibly in love or just in lust with his gambling arm candy, would have come to Courbet and asked for a little memento to be painted. It makes good sense. What is surprising, though, and probably my favorite part of this whole business with Courbet's shocking the origin of the world, is that Constance Kinio ended up being a very respectable Parisian grand dame, growing in fame from her meager beginnings as a dancer and possibly a courtesan, to becoming a very wealthy and respected member of society, one whose name was frequently found in newspapers for her generosity and interest in the arts and culture. She lived comfortably and well, dying in 1908, significantly outliving both her lover, Bay, who died at the age of 47, and Courbet, who died at 58 years old. And for Schopp and Obena, this was one of the best parts, which Schopp has uncovered at length in his recent book, The Origin of the World, Life of the Model. About this, Schopp noted, quote, My only contribution was to make this object a subject. Now she's something else beside flesh. I wanted to restore a person. I wanted to restore dignity to a woman. And this woman? She surprised me." Unquote. Just because we are now pretty darn sure who the model was for Courbet's racy origin of the world, and that the other half of the canvas may very well have been found, it doesn't mean that the shock factor of the work of art is going to let up anytime soon. Indeed, just last year again, 2018 seems to have been a big year for a little painting from 1866, a French court ruled that it had been wrong for Facebook to censor images of the painting online, though Facebook was not required to pay the hoped-for $25,000 to the plaintiff, an arts educator named Frédéric Durand, who posted an image of the Courbet painting and was summarily kicked off the social media platform without notice. And even now, if you search for the work on Google Images, you'll get many more images of censored versions of the work of art over the originals, though Google is not reportedly actively censoring the painting. It's all further testament to the fact that this work of art is still powerful and still incendiary, and other artists have taken inspiration from it for decades, especially feminist artists and critics who had a problem with the voyeuristic aspect of Courbet's original and have taken to creating their own versions. French provocatrice Orlan produced her take in 1989 cheekily and pointedly titled The Origin of War, and she does a crazy gender reversal, placing a man in the delicate position. 
More recently, and possibly more insanely, a Luxembourgish performance artist named Deborah de Robertis staged a so-called intervention in 2014, when she entered the Musée d'Orsay's galleries, sat down, spread-legged, directly in front of the origin of the world, and showed the visitors what she called her origin of the origin. And yes, there are photos and videos of this online, but I will let you Google those on your own time, because well, you probably know why. This work will keep bringing up the same uncomfortable questions that we have asked ourselves last time on the Art Curious podcast. We began our last episode about Baltus's Therese Dreaming by asking about the fine line between art and pornography. And the Facebook lawsuit really proves that this line is still blurry, still difficult. Is Courbet's work of art porn? The famous feminist art historian Linda Nochlin, a personal hero of mine, she thought so. And she wrote her PhD dissertation on Courbet, so she does seem like a credible source here. Do I personally think it's porn? Well, no, not really. But I also don't feel totally comfortable looking at this work. I've seen it twice at the Musée d'Orsay, and staring at a work of art like this does make me feel a little gross, even if I'm just leaning in to examine the brushstrokes. And no, that is not a euphemism. Like, I subscribe just to read the articles. For me, the painting is just a little too much. It's still a little too shocking, even today. And perhaps that was exactly the point. Even in terms of erotic art, this one goes above and beyond, a bridge too far. And going way overboard was exactly what Courbet was all about. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Kelsey Breen. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Natalie Broyhill. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. Additional editing help is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more details about our show, including the images mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. Now, this is our last episode of season five and the last of our nearly year-long foray into the shocking works of art history. But you know that we aren't going anywhere. I will be taking a couple months off to work on the next season and a couple other big projects that are brewing, but we will be back soon with more stories of the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. Until then, stay subscribed, tell your friends about our show, stay tuned for more details, and thank you. <laughs>